Hey Jubilee, we're so excited that you've joined us online today to listen to this message in our series, Unseen. If you haven't already heard, you can get better connected to our church by creating an account on JFC Portal or JFC Mobile. If you're on your computer, just go to jfc.org forward slash portal. And if you're on your mobile device, just go to your app store and search Jubilee Fellowship Church. If you'd like to give, just go to jfc.org forward slash give. Thank you so much and have a great day. Good morning. Boy, it's good to see you. I'm glad that you're here. On the way into all of our campuses, they hand you the notes if you'd like to get those out. And there's a fill in the blank, so you may want to get a pen or a pencil. If you use a device for it, that's great too. And if you just want to sit back and listen, we invite you to do it any way you feel most comfortable. Before we jump in, I got two quick things that um, uh, that I, I want to talk about. The first one, uh, we've got our junior high, senior high camp coming up in just the next 10 days or so. That'll that'll be going on. And I, I don't know where they're at right now, but I know before the first service last night, they had 250 kids that had already signed up for it, said, hey, pastor, would you give it the old pastoral caress um, and, and just help, help you know, kind of do what you do from the pulpit. So I, I was trying to think, you know, what, what would I say about it? And I had an interesting thing happen to me um, a week, week and a half ago. I, I went to a pastor's meeting, and a really, really great half-day meeting. It was over at a church called Red Rocks Church. I don't know if you heard of it. Great church, man. They're just, they're, they're, they're doing some great things for God. And um, didn't, wasn't quite ready for that, like, <laughs> let me try this. You ever heard of Jubilee Church? That's a great church doing some... In your face. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm teasing. Uh, <laughs> here's, so I go to this, dude, you threw me completely off of what I was going to say. I go to this meeting. There's all these pastors from all these different churches. And uh, a, a young guy walks up to me and he goes, hey, Pastor John. And I recognized his face, but I couldn't peg the name. You ever done that? You know, like, I know him, but I, I can't. Well, and I, you know, and, and the fallback is, hey, bro, how are you? And, and he goes, you don't remember me, do you? And I said, I do, but I can't remember where I know you from. Why do I know you? And he said, I was in your youth group. And I'm like, oh, man, that was a long time ago. What are you doing now? And he said, I am a youth pastor here at a church in the city. And he said, um, as we got talking, he said, I was called into ministry in your ministry, and he happened to say it was at one of our, he reminded me of what camp it was at. God had done really something special and called several people in the ministry. Got thinking about that and would say to you this, this is not like if your kid goes to camp, they'll be called into ministry. That, that's, only God does things like that. But it is to say this, of all the things when I look back as a youth pastor, things that I know, and we did so much, so many activities and so many, so many meetings, so many things together, the things that I know that made a real difference in young people's lives were the times where they heard God's voice speak to them directly. And I don't know what it is about that. Maybe a camp allows for just you're away from everything and you have a chance to hear. Maybe you're with a other, you know, bunch of people your age that are just, they're going for God and maybe that atmosphere just creates. I don't know what it is exactly, but I do know when I look back, there are several things I can point to that I, I still see the fruit in my life today. As a parent... Here's what I would say. The most important thing that you want for your kid is to have fruit that remains in their life that's good fruit. You agree with that statement right there? Things like this, I, I, even if you're new and you're just like, well, we don't know anybody, I promise you they set these up to go out of their way 
for it to be a connection point for a young person. If you're a young person and you hear me and you're just like, I just don't think I'd ever do something like that, here's what I would challenge you with. Do you want? Do, do you desire? Is there anything in you that wants to go higher spiritually? Do you want to hear God's voice? Do you want to connect? Do you want to grow spiritually? Be willing then to step into the things that are provided for you. Don't sit back on the sidelines and just go, I wish, I wish, I wish. Sometimes take that step and watch what God could do. How would you sign up for it? Online, jfc.org. Right on the front page there when you open it up, you'll see the opportunity to register for camp. And if you have any questions uh, at each of our campuses, one of the youth pastors will be out there in the foyer afterwards willing to talk to you. Last but not least, uh, this is just a quick one, a, a, a fun one to announce. Pastor Jonathan and Gina Wood, who are here at this camp, uh, Gina delivered their fourth child. Now, so they have three girls. What do you think they had? Girl. A girl. John just doesn't have it in him. So here, no. <laughs> I have waited for this service to say those words right there. I, 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 I was on the tip of my tongue in that first service, and I thought, nobody will think it's funny. And then I, this one, I'm like, I don't care. I, that's, so he, uh, he, he I, I'm just teasing. She was born. So let me, let me, I mess their names up every time. All right. The oldest is Faith, then Grace, then Joy, and this one's name is Hope. Isn't, aren't those neat names? So Hope was born 35 weeks. Uh, she's a little premature, not a lot. Uh, she was set to come home today. They had her a week ago. She was set to come home today, uh, last night actually, and her oxygen level dropped. And uh, when it's a preemie, they're not, you know, they, they're a little more reluctant to let them go home. They want to make sure everything's good. So if you would pray, pray for the woods, pray that they get to bring their little girl home tonight or tomorrow. They're anxious to get their family unit back together and, and start that life together. And I know John and Gina are so, so excited. So, um, just, just remember them if you think about it. It would, be, it would be awesome. Okay, grab your notes and we'll jump into this message. The title of the series is called Unseen. We chose that because we're talking about spiritual warfare and the fact that there's an unseen world around us. Paul actually, when he talks about this unseen world, he uses sort of an oxymoron. I pray that God would give you eyes to see what can't be seen. It's, it's almost a funny statement. Now, when I started this, uh, let me, I, I, made a, I made a statement. C.S. Lewis, you know C.S. Lewis, who I'm talking about? C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about spiritual warfare. And I happen to be reading C.S. Lewis right now. And one of the things that I thought was really, it was a key thing. He said there are two extremes that believers go to when it comes to spiritual warfare. Both of them are out of balance and both of them are wrong. The first one is believers tend to ignore spiritual issues when it comes to the enemy and what the enemy does, and they just remain ignorant towards the enemy, here's the problem with that. Then you give the devil the right to do things in your life, and you don't even know he's doing it. That's a problem. Do you agree? And then the other one is equally out of balance and just as bad. It's people that just pay too much attention to the devil. And everything that goes on, they blame the devil on. Their tire goes flat. The devil put a thorn in the road. I locked myself out of my house. The devil hid my keys. No. No, that's another disease. We'll talk about that one later. This, 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 this teaching 
in order to be most beneficial to you, has to fall somewhere between those two. We're not trying to give the devil just like, let's pay attention to what the devil's doing, nor do we want to go to the extreme of ignoring those things. Here's the middle, and here's what you need to remember. This battle, this unseen battle, this spiritual warfare that we enter into, here, here's what I want you to always remember. This is not about we're fighting this battle because we're trying to beat the devil. The devil's already been beaten by Jesus. This is important to remember as a believer. The book of Colossians tells us clearly that Jesus has already stripped the enemy of his power, having triumphed over him through the cross of Christ. He publicly embarrassed him. So then what's the fight about? What are we even teaching about then? Why is it even an issue? Because we still live in this world where right now you represent Jesus and you're trying to take all the ground between now and the time Christ returns. So he is, look, he is a defeated foe. If you want to cheat, read the end of the book. We win. Okay? But between now and that time, that's the battle. The battle for your life. The battle for territory. The battle for, for souls. That's what we're battling for. So that's the spiritual battle. That's what we've been talking about. Today, uh, we're going we're gonna to transition, go a little bit further than this. I've been trying to teach how to recognize what spiritual warfare is, how to, how to pick it out, how to know that it's actually spiritual warfare. I've been talking about how to fight, and most important, today we're going to talk about what the win is, what it looks like when we win. So the name of the message is just simply Fighting and Winning. Ephesians chapter 6 has been uh, what we've camped out on and kind of used as the, the, the foundation for teaching this message. So uh, I'm going to go a little bit further with this, but I'll read what we've taught so far. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 11, we'll go to 17. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus these words, Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to... What's the word right there? Okay, now we're going to read that word three other times, a total of four times. Just remember that. So put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blooded enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. There it is. Against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to stand your ground in the time or the day or the point of fighting. Then after the battle, after you come through, after you, you stand against what the enemy's trying to do, you will still be, what? Standing firm. And then he begins the next sentence, one more time, the fourth time he uses the word, stand your ground, putting on, and this is the armor of God, the belt of truth, the body armor of God's righteousness for shoes, put on peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of your enemy, the devil. Put on salvation as a helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He uses in the idea of a battle, a soldier's gear. Now, when Paul wrote this, he's writing it 2,000 years ago. He's writing it to a people who would have understood clearly the picture he's painting. He's painting the picture of what a Roman guard would have looked like, a Roman soldier, a centurion. Remember, if you just go back in your history, the civilized world at that time was around the Mediterranean, which included Israel. Rome was the dictating power. The way that Rome did what they did was to invade and occupy a land. These were not peacekeepers like we know American soldiers. These were brutal people 
who the way they extracted taxes and increased their kingdom was to come into a land to knock the people down and to put their foot on the throat of the land they were occupying. They treated the, the people who they invaded as though they were nothing but dogs. These are brutal people. Paul uses the analogy of what they would have so known, that, that, that people group would have so known what a soldier looks like and what a soldier wore on a day-to-day basis and what they look like when they go into battle. That's the picture that he paints right here. Now, in a moment, I'm going to come back to this, and the reason it's important to recognize this, he's trying to use uh, 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 an idea, a picture from their culture, something they would relate to easily. You get that? But 2,000 years later, we lose something because we don't relate to it. We think how soldiers look today, and he's not describing how a soldier looks today. He's describing it then, and he's got a point, and I'll bring that out in just a second. But let me give you the first one here. Let me talk about the wind. What's the wind look like? So four times in that verse of Scripture, we read the word stand. Stand your ground. Stand, therefore. Having done all, stand. He uses that word in such a prolific way. The win, ultimately, is that when the battle happens in your life, after the devil throws his best shot, you win if you're still standing. Yes or no? That's what it says. But the problem with it is it draws sort of for us uh, an identity again that may be wrong. Now, look, just like they were a product of their culture, you and I, whether we like it or not, we're a product of our culture. Do you agree? All right, so I want you to think. I, I, I write down this sentence right here. I, I, I don't like my illustration, but it's a product of the culture we live in. So I'm going to use it. You can laugh at it if you want to, but give me a chance to take something and make something out of it before you just go, come on. So I wrote this down. Remain standing. The victor always is standing after the fight. That's how you can tell who won, yes or no. And the thing that comes to my mind are the Rocky movies. I know. I'm a victim of my own culture. So remember the Rocky movie? You know, they're coming out with a new Rocky. Did you know that? I think it's Rocky 42 or something like that. I'm, I don't know what it is, but it's how many of those things have there been? There's a new one coming at Christmas time. And this time it's Apollo Creed's great-great-grandson. That's, no, it's, it's his son or something that's fighting. So you remember the Rocky movies? The very first one, Rocky is an underdog. He's a nobody. He gets a shot at the title. The champions, Apollo Creed, they beat each other to a pulp. And you remember they both fall down, Right? And it's sort of a, there's really a no win. So there, there's a, the Rocky II is the rematch. And do you remember what happens? They beat each other to a pulp. And somehow Rocky goes over and he grabs onto the rope as he's falling down. And because he doesn't fall, he's the victor. And if you get the idea that that's what it means, it's just get, get the fire beat out of you. Lose your teeth, your eyes are blackened, you've got nothing left, but you just happen to be standing. You, that is not what God is saying that it means to win. It's better understood not just stand, but stand and hold on to the ground that God's given you. Don't let the devil take from you what God has done. You can't fall away, you can't back up, you can't fall down, but it's not just to survive the punch, it's actually, don't just stand there, hold on to what God's given you, and beat the devil so that he can't take back what God's given you. Hold your ground. That would be the way to understand this. Now, let me just throw out an example real quick, an illustration of how this works and why this is important. And to do that, i got to go back in time a little bit. All right, 18 years ago, our church is about to turn 18 years old. Can you believe that? So the problem with that is I look in the mirror, and I don't feel like I've been here 18 years. I don't feel like I look like a guy that's pastored, senior pastor for 18 years. On the inside, I don't feel that way. I feel like I've pastored 500 years. No, I, I, no, I... 
I love what I do. I'm excited about what I do. It just doesn't seem like that much time. So when I, when I try to think back to these days, I have to pull myself back to what it was like. Here's what it was like. We didn't come here because we came into something somebody was offering us. We had a word from the Lord, move here, start this thing, and nobody was writing checks for us. So consequently, here's what we laid everything on the line to do this. We, we, we began taking ground in a school, and then we moved to a storefront. We took more ground. Then we began to build buildings, and then we built multiple buildings. And then I would set goals. Let's give away a million dollars in missions. Let's see a 1,000 people come to Christ. This we would set these huge goals, and we would accomplish and take all this ground. And it was really cool. It went on really well. And here, here the, the thing was, because we did this in a way where we didn't have deep pockets, we just lived near the edge. Anybody here ever lived near the edge? It's, here's all God ever told me. If you do what I tell you to do, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. And I got real. It gave me a great thrill to think, God, if you don't show up, we're done tomorrow. But thank you for showing up today. And I lived like that for the longest time. And as I did it for a while, this funny thing began to happen. And God was always faithful. He never gave us too much, but he always gave us enough. Just what he promised us. But I got this funny idea in my mind. God, I don't like living near the edge. So here's what I need to do. I'm going to begin to push back from the edge. And the way I'm going to do that, the much, as much money as I possibly can put in the bank to keep me from the edge, God, that's how I'm going to begin to do ministry. And rather, see, when you live out here where you just have to trust God every day, it, spiritually, the devil can't do much to you. You're just in this place where there's just not a lot he can do to you. But when you get back here and you've got all this other stuff you have to start worrying about, it's, my guard was down. I wasn't prepared. And the devil set up a spiritual battle for me. Um, it was really funny because on a day-to-day -day basis, I was trusting God for what we needed to do today. We're going to take ground. We're going to plant churches. We're going to train people. We're going to keep the kingdom of God moving forward, and we're always going to be able to say it was not because of any man or woman, but because God did this for us. But that edge began to become uncomfortable to me, and the older I got, I thought, you know, God, really, I want distance between me and that edge. And I get it. Maybe it's just human nature that we don't like living near the edge. The problem was, if God calls you to live close to, trust me every day. You make a bad mistake when you go, God, I want to trust in the amount of money I have in the bank every day. And I began to try to put as much away as I could and as live as far away from that cutting edge as I could. Now, let me just ask you this question. Um, my trust was always in what God could do. And somehow, suddenly, my trust became in how much money we had in the bank. Instead of looking at God every day, Am I okay? I began to look at what the bank statement said every day. Am I okay? You agree that's a subtle shift, huh? Almost, I use the word like inevitably. Inevitably, if God loves me and God has called me to do something, inevitably, God would have to interrupt what I was doing in order to get me back where I need to be. Would you agree? Yes. And two and a half years ago, this funny thing began to happen. Almost overnight, the finances began to change. Now listen to this. For 15 years in a row, every year, we had almost doubled what the income was. You imagine, every year for 15 years, doubling your income. Every year for 15 years, I watched this. And suddenly, when that became my trust, and I put my hope in what that was, 
almost overnight, it just dried up. And I didn't view it as anything spiritual. I just thought, well, maybe people are going through stuff. or My guard was down. I wasn't aware. And I was very slow to respond to it. I kept thinking, ah, God, he'll do something. He'll, I'm okay. And I would watch it ebb away, ebb away, ebb away from the bank. The amount of people didn't change. But I would just watch it ebb away, ebb away. Pretty soon I found myself, God, like, what's going on? I was sitting in Israel two and a half years ago. Pastor Todd, our business administrator, sends me a text while I'm in Israel. And this is what Todd says, John, you got a cash crunch coming and you're going to be out of cash by the time you get back. Now, I don't know about you. Uh, when I run into problems, I love to look for who to blame. Anybody else like that? So I don't like to point at myself. Anybody else like to, you like to blame? I've got like a spiritual gift of blaming. <laughs> so I take it out on Todd. Todd, this is your job. You should have been telling me. Todd's like, John, I send you a financial report every week. And I knew. I knew for more than six months it was going this way, going this way. Slow to respond, slow to respond, slow to respond. All right. The onslaught of my guard being down and slow to respond to a spiritual battle was that by the time I recognized it for what it was, here's what took place. I ended up having to lay off a bunch of people. I ended up having to shut down and change a bunch of programs that we were doing. We had given a raise the year before, and I had to go to all those people and say, hey, we've got to take that raise back. How many of you think that's a fun day? It was not a fun time. It was a terrible time. Every day for a year and a half, every day, the enemy would scream at me in my head, quit. You're a bad leader. You've made a horrible mistake. A better leader would have caught this. A better leader would have responded to it quicker. A better leader is what it's going to take to get these people out of this. You want the pressure to stop? Quit. Now I need to say, hey, you responded awesome. Your ability to hear from God and to see and to, to help us, it, It took a while, but we turned it around. So what did I learn? So my first response was, I get to the end of it. It's almost a three-year process, and I get to the end of it, and I'm still standing, right? Did I win? So maybe on, like, the most base level, I won because the devil didn't get me to quit. Maybe. But here's the result of not seeing it as a spiritual battle and not fighting the right way. I looked around at all the territory we had gained for 15 years, and I had lost at least half of what we gained over 15 years. I lost crucial people that we had trained and put in spots that I needed that I had to let go. The worst thing that I lost, I used to be fearless when it came to planting churches, to taking ground. I never thought of my welfare. The only thing I thought about was Jesus is coming back and I've got to let people know before he gets here. And that's how I lived my life. And the result was somehow the devil made me afraid to risk. He stole from me my fearlessness. Now, I'm recovering that. And I'm getting it back. You know, the problem with teaching this, not being all the way fully through it, is it's still in process right now. But once I realized what it was, dude, I ran to the battle and I realized, God, it wasn't just standing that you wanted for me. It was standing firm on what you gave me so that after the devil took his best shot, I'm still there with everything you gave me. Here's my thought to you. How many of us on two levels, how many of us, we stood 
during a spiritual battle, but all we've got left is the fact that I didn't quit. The devil took everything else. Stole your marriage. Got your kids. Messed with your business. Eroded your spiritual life. Let me go another step with it. How many of you can't even say you stood? You fell. That thing that screamed at you, quit and give up and stop, you fell for it. You gave into it. Uh, question for you. What does the Bible say to a person that falls? Does God like tap his foot, cross his arms and go, well, if only. Really sorry, too late. The book of Proverbs actually has several things to say to the person who's fallen. Maybe the most significant says it this way. If you fall, when the righteous fall, they rise seven times. If you fall seven times, and seven times doesn't mean, oh, you're only allowed seven times to fall. It's an idiom for falling. So really what it's saying is no matter how many times you fall, Here's what the righteous do really well. The righteous get back up again. Look at me. You want to win against the devil? Here's the first decision you need to make today. Get back up. Don't lay there. Don't just be mowed over. Don't just go, I lost everything. Make a spiritual decision today. I'm going to rise again. Yeah, if you want to do spiritual warfare... Quit screaming, quit crying, quit yelling, quit complaining. Stand up. Get back up again. Make a decision. Maybe the thing the devil fears the most and the reason he tries so hard to keep you down is that you are an unbeatable force if you'll stand back up in Christ. You're unbeatable if you'll just stand. Let me, though, talk about why the armor then, if you're going to stand, becomes so important. Now, I need to apologize to you. I prepared this message, and as I, I began to teach this last night, I realized I could have used this as two messages. I could have spent time just talking about standing, holding ground, taking ground, getting back. Listen, God is the God of recovery and the God of discovery. So there are promises that some of you are going to hear for the very first time today and you're going to discover something. But some of you, you need to recover what's been taken from you. And here's what God promises. When the devil takes from us, God is the God of recompense. He gives back what the enemy steals from us. Remember that. I could have made the whole message about that, but there's only so much time in any series to teach all that you can teach. So I want to teach real quickly about the armor of God. And i got to apologize because it could stand by itself as its own message. And I will never be able to give this the justice that it's due. I want to read for you again what the armor of God is. And then I want to point out to you something I never saw before that the Holy Spirit showed me this week. Paul writes, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, therefore. And here's the armor of God. Putting on, first, the belt of truth. Second, the body armor of God's righteousness. Third, for your shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith that will stop the fiery arrows of the enemy. 
Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of the God. So he gives seven things that we're to do in this situation to fight. Now, I'm going to ask this question. I just want, I want to get you on the line of thinking here. Uh, I'm a writer. I, I, part of my job is that I, I write a lot during the week. And I write for many different reasons, not, not just for you, but I write for me. I just write. Now, sometimes I have so many thoughts in my head. Is anybody else here like, I have so many thoughts in my head. When I go to write, I try to write them down as fast as I can so I don't forget what I've got in my head. Is that anybody else like that? And inevitably, I forget one or two things. Does that ever happen to you? So I, I'm not even thinking, what's the order here? I'm just like, oh, get it all down. But when I'm really thoughtful and when I have something to say, especially if I'm going to teach, I order everything that I'm going to say, so I write, here's one, here's two, here's three. Anybody else like that? Okay, so I want to ask you a question. Paul writes this about the armor, and I want you to decide right now, is Paul's head so full of knowledge that he's afraid he's going to forget it, so he just starts writing randomly about the armor, and there's no order to it? Or is he writing specifically? Here's the first piece of armor. Think about this. Here's the first piece of armor you've got to put on. Here's the second piece that you put on. Here's, does it matter how we put it on, or is there an order to it is what I'm asking? You ever considered that? I never considered that before. All right, I got tons of study stuff. I, I collect that stuff. I use it all the time. I've got three books from when I was in Bible college that talk about the Roman world during that time. One of the books deals with Roman culture and Roman soldiers. And so it draws pictures of what a Roman soldier looked like. And here's the problem. Our culture, again, has ruined us for this because if I said to you, picture a Roman soldier, you'll picture more of a peacock-looking thing than you'll picture a gladiator. These guys were ferocious, man. They were meant to intimidate. The, these were men who did not fear spilling blood. Here's what they were told. If you go into battle and you lose, it'll be worse for you if you come back here to me than it would be if you died in battle. Would that change the way you would fight? These guys were tough guys. So Paul, when he writes about spiritual warfare, he takes the idea of a Roman soldier's gear, and he actually orders it. And here's what I read this week. A Roman soldier's gear was underpinned and held together by one thing first and foremost, and it was the belt they had to put on. If you saw a Roman soldier, you'd never see their belt because it was underneath their body armor. But the body armor connected and rested on the belt so that it could stay in place. Not just the shoulder, but on the belt. The sword hung from the belt. Their shoes were leather pieces past the, the greaves that were on, that wrapped all the way up around and connected to the belt so that they wouldn't fall off. And here was the point. The belt was the foundation that everything else rested on. And if they didn't put the belt on, nothing else would stay in place when they went into battle. Here's what Paul is saying. The most important piece you have to put on to fight the enemy is truth. If you don't put truth on first and then you try to put on righteousness, your righteousness won't stay in place because the devil will take truth from you. If you try to put on salvation but you don't have truth on, the devil will cause you to question your salvation. You ever questioned your salvation? If you try to pick your sword up and you don't have truth, how do you even know what a lie is? What are you fighting against unless you know what truth is? Yes or no? How about this? The devil is the greatest liar ever. Do you agree with that? And here's how he works. He comes to us and he talks and he talks and he talks and he talks. He is such a liar. Here's what he wants. He talks long enough where you either question God or you agree with the liar. 
You do either of those things, and he's got you right where he wants you. Case in point, Eve. The enemy comes to Eve. He doesn't twist what God says. Here's all he does. Did God really mean it that way? All she had to say was, yes, that's the truth. And the devil is stopped in his tracks. But the moment she questions truth, what happens? It opens her and her family up to the enemy coming in and taking all the ground that God had given them. Yes or no? How about Pilate when he's dealing with Jesus? He has Jesus in front of him. He's looking for a reason to, to dismiss Jesus. So he asks him this question. They say you're the king of the Jews. Is it true? Jesus to this point has said very little. But he looks at Pilate and he goes, you are speaking the truth. Do you remember Pilate's response back to Jesus? What is Tell me, that is not where our world is at today. Jesus says, here's the truth, and the world goes, what is truth? Now, and on a greater level, the church today finds itself dealing with what is truth. And without truth as your foundation, your salvation has nothing to rest on in your life. Without truth as your foundation... I can tell you you're the righteousness of God in Christ, but unless that's truth to you, that thing will just move all over your life, and the devil will take full advantage of that. Right. Do you agree? Yes. God, this is why so many people, they just get slaughtered. when They, try, they, they end up getting beat up, and they think, okay, I made it through, but I, <laughs> that just took a... That's not what... God wants you to stand, hold your ground, beat the devil, remain intact, so after the battle's over, you've taken more ground. Let's get beat up. Truth. God, how important is truth? You cannot distinguish a lie without truth. Maybe here's a better question to ask. How powerful is a lie? You know, when a person believes a lie, even if it's not true, it becomes their truth. Yeah. The paradigm they live through, that they think through, that they see the world through. A, a lie is so powerful that even everybody else that can see it's a lie, for that person, they can't see it. And they live that lie. Lies can be so powerful that a government can believe a lie and enslave and kill millions of people with a lie. Look at history. Lies. How do you even know what a lie is unless you know what truth is? You can't detect a lie with another lie. You know a lie by knowing the truth. I wrote down for each of the armor a thought. As I got teaching this, it dawned on me, if you don't get truth right, it doesn't matter what else I say. Some people will hear this and go, well, pastor, that's kind of truthy. It's one of the truths that are out there. Yes or no, that immediately puts you in the position of being ineffective if you're not sure what you believe is true. Some people would go, Pastor, how do you... It's just that simple for you? No. No. There was a point that everybody has to make about what's true. I made a decision a long time ago. Truth comes from making a decision. I made a decision 
this is from God, and whether I get it or not, I'm going to live my life by this truth. Everybody lives by some truth, but it doesn't make everything true. If you don't know this, how do you know what's a lie? Hear what I'm saying on this issue. You know, I'll close the message with this. I get asked a lot for appointments. People, all of our pastors do. Meet with me, talk to me. I got a problem. I get it. That's why we're here. Part of the reason we're here. So I, I meet this guy recently, and, and uh, I know him. He's been around for a long period of time. Here's what happens. When things get really, really bad, which is like a cyclical thing, and he can't take it anymore, he calls, hey, can you meet with me? Okay. So I meet with him, and I listen, and here's what he really wants. Tells me how bad everything is, and what he really wants is, hey, can you just give me one thing so I can just, let's fix this quick. Just, like, make it go away. It affects his kids, it affects his wife, it affects his business, it affects his spiritual life. I mean, the devil's just winning on all areas. And he's like, so, so now I don't just fix it. And I, I say, bro, it's not a matter of just fixing it. You've got to walk in truth. You've got to do what God tells you to do. And if you won't do that, you'll get some little relief. But it'll get bad again. And you're, just, you're living your life in this long cyclical. It's just perpetually you're losing. When are you going to do the truth? And he kind of walks away from me sad. And I'm studying this week. And there was a young, wealthy guy that came to Jesus that asked the same question. What do I do to make it to heaven? And Jesus said, hey, you know the commandments. And the guy's like, great, I do them. And he goes, ah, you're right. The last thing is sell everything and give it all away to the poor and follow after me. And the guy walked away sad because he couldn't do the truth. Truth is a decision we all make. We want things to be better. Truth is a decision we all make. That's a message I don't think gets taught a lot anymore. A lot of what we teach is self-help. Here's how to be a little better. Here's how to make it a little better. Here's how to be able to tolerate it a little longer. God wants you to walk in truth so that your life is what he called it to be. He wants you to win. Father, I know part of this message is a difficult thing to hear. God, I'm not immune from it. I know recently, Father God, in my life, having to come back to, I, I didn't walk away from truth, but I went at an angle away from truth. You called me to live my life a particular way. You didn't call anybody else to do that necessarily, but you called me to live my life a particular way. And when I do that, God, you surround me with everything that I need. You hold me up. God, in your truth, I advance and I live and I have life. <laughs> and God, the minute I try to create my own way, the minute I begin to go, oh, there's got to be another way outside of what you told me to do, man, I create my own hell. And then, of course, I'm like, God, bail me out of my hell. But I really have to go back and do the truth. Here's what God told me to do. 
Church, hear what I'm saying on this. At the point we divide from truth, that's what we have to go back to and hold on to the truth. Let go of error, hold on to truth. So maybe there's two people in here today. The first one just simply is, Pastor, what is truth? You've got to make a decision. There's a lot of people out there saying a lot of different things, pointing to truthy things. But what is ultimate truth? I say to you, truth can't be found inside this world. It has to come from outside of this world to be ultimate truth. And that's what we believe God's word is. It's from outside of the system. It's eternal. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You have to make a decision about that. Some can and some can't. That's truth. If you've already made that decision, how are you doing spiritually? And if you find yourself today, you know, Pastor, man, you describe that I'm still standing, but gosh, it's like I take a beating and everything around me is taken away. Have you disregarded truth? Have you let go of what God told you? Have you found yourself go parallel away from what truth is? So maybe it's self-examination right now and you need to look in your heart and ask a harder question. Maybe it's more than five or ten seconds of me saying it. Maybe you need to examine. I would encourage you to examine and when you find that place, repent of it and ask God, restore truth to me. Maybe it's something you already know and all I'm doing is just simply bringing it back to your attention. Deal with it right now. God, I want your truth. I want to do what you told me to do. Somewhere, somehow, when we find ourselves not living in what God told us, man, it creates a hell. The way out of that, God's truth. Father, be merciful to every one of us. You're not the God of if only, you're the God of right now, but now, but now, if you call out to me, but now, if you grab hold of truth, right now, if you listen to what I'm saying. God is a restorer. We discover and recover. Discover and recover. And that's what God offers. Father, I thank you for that. I ask that you be merciful to all of us today in that. I thank you for truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, church.